All right, everybody. So tonight we are going to be looking at the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapters 16, 17, and 18. We're going to try to get through three chapters tonight. We'll see how it goes. So we're looking at uh, chapters on, so chapter 16 is on good works. Chapter 17 is on perseverance of the saints. And chapter 18 is on assurance of salvation and of grace. So these are what we're going to be looking at this evening. Before we get started, let's take a moment to pray. Lord, we thank you for the time and the opportunity this evening to uh, look through the Westminster Confession of Faith, to learn from those who've gone before us. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would guide us into a right knowledge of the truth as we seek to understand your word better. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, as you recall, um, we have gone through what they call the the order of salvation, um, effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification. And then last week we talked about saving faith and repentance unto life. And tonight we're going to be talking about good works, perseverance, and assurance. Okay, um, all these chapters I find to be really, really helpful. Um, you know the language is old-fashioned, um, but as I as I read through them, I find in almost every paragraph I find I find things that are just very helpful and very practical for the Christian life. And hopefully, we'll be able to get into that tonight. Okay, so chapter 16, we'll, we'll jump right in here. Chapter 16, uh, paragraph 1. Good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word, and not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. And so this paragraph is, ask, is answering the question, what are good works? Why do you think it's important that we define what good works are? Or how do we know if something is a good work? Why, why does that matter? Dan? Because God said no one is good. Because God said no one is good. That's not... You need to understand what, what God means. You have to understand what good is. Mm-hmm. It has to have an objective mm-hmm. definition. If we're, if we're thinking about the life, if we're thinking about the Christian life and we're thinking about how we live the Christian life in the church and uh, we know that the Bible says that God, uh, we are God's workmanship prepared for good works ahead of time so that we might walk in them. Um, we know that God wants us to do good works. That's his intention. And so why does it matter, Carmela? Um, to be able to discern Yes, um, and you know uh, we've been reading with our kids um, a little biography of Martin Luther. And of course, you go back and you read about Martin Luther, and you can read all about the good works that people thought that they were doing in the Roman Catholic Church back then. 
Uh, so we read, of course, there's the indulgences, right? So you can pay with money to get an indulgence. But there were other ways that you could get an indulgence and get a get out of purgatory free card. Um, one, one which the story talks about is if you walked on your knees up this long flight of stairs somewhere in Rome, then you could get an indulgence to get out of a thousand years of purgatory by walking on your knees up a flight of stairs. Um, so this is very helpful that, that the confession is saying good works are only what God has commanded in his word. That's how we know what a good work is, is because God says, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I, this is what I want you to do. Um, you could think of other, other things that are kind of made up that people are pressured into doing, going on pilgrimages, right? That's a, that was a big one in the past. And I suppose like, maybe that's still, maybe that's still kind of a thing. For some, for some people, something like pilgrimages. Um, there are, it, it is interesting that there are certain kinds of um, service or things that in the life of a church can, can become this like, people conceive of it as being this like super holy thing, even though the Bible doesn't necessarily talk about it as being like a super holy thing. I remember... When I was in college and the campus ministry I was a part of, we had a praise team and uh, I was on the praise team. I played the bass. Uh, that was how talented I was. Bass is pretty easy to play. Um, and uh, one, of the, one of the girls who was on the praise team, I forget what she said, but it, something that she said made it clear to me that she thought that like because we were on the praise team that like what we were doing was just much more important than what the other people were doing when they showed up to sing. And I had to be like, uh, hold, hold on a second. Like, we're not worshiping God more because we're on a praise team. Like, we're not doing something more important than them. And so that's, I think that's an example in uh, the church today where people can, can kind of take this thing and elevate it and say like, wow, if you're playing the bass, then you're really... You're really doing a good work in a way that, you know, poor lowly me who just shows up to church is not, is not doing. Um, I've also been kind of struck by, this is, I think this is maybe more of a recent thing. Um, and that is like really bizarre fundraisers. Um, when I was, this is another college story. When I was in college, uh, there, Christian groups would do these fundraisers where they would say like, we're going to go to the campus gym and we're going to run laps around the gym for 24 hours straight. And so we're raising money. Like, will you, like we're going to give all the proceeds to this place and we're going to run laps for 24 hours. Or we're not going to eat for 48 hours. Will you pay us money while we don't eat for 48 hours? And then, we'll, and then it'll go to Haiti or something like that. And I, it's still to this day, I think like, why don't you just raise money? Like, why, why do we, like, why do we have to not eat for 48 hours or why do, so, um, so these are, these are kind of interesting, but the point here is that good works are the things that God says and his word are good works. Micah 6, 8, right? This is a passage a lot of you know, 
Um, what, what is it that God wants? Um, does God want us to um, sacrifice lots and lots of animals to him? Does God want a whole river of oil devoted to him? What does God want? Does God want us to offer our children to him in sacrifice? No. Um, Micah says, he has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require but that you love justice, that you do justice, that you love kindness and mercy, and that you walk humbly with your God. These are the things that God wants us to do. Um, Romans 12, 2 also teaches us that we need our minds to be renewed if we are to do good works. It says, Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Paul is saying in this passage that if we want to know what is the will of God, if we want to know what God says is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect and what he wants us to do, we need to have our minds renewed. We need to have our, our whole way of thinking changed. And this is especially important when you remember that man has this uh, constant tendency to use our traditions to cancel out God's word, right? And so this is something that Jesus talks to the Pharisees about and really gets on their case about. Um, this is in a number of the Gospels, but in Matthew 15, this, Matthew 15 is where, it, is where it shows up in the book of Matthew. And Jesus says, uh, God told you, honor your father and mother. So there's a good work, honor your father and mother. But Jesus says, but you tell people that you can tell your parents whatever, that whatever they would benefit from you is now devoted to God. And so they've created this new work. I've taken all of my stuff. I've devoted it to God, and that means that I am no longer able to help my parents because I devoted it all to God. Um, and Jesus says, you are, uh, you are taking your tradition and you're using it to turn the word of God into nothing, into absolutely nothing. And, and so Jesus condemned them for that. And so we, uh, not only do we need to have, you know, I need to have my way of thinking changed, by the Holy Spirit in order to know what is good and to be able to see things in light of Scripture. But on top of my own tendency to cook up my own version of good works, there's also, the, you know, there's also this whole mountain of tradition that, get, that can get passed down. And this is why we need the, the Reformers said that the Reformed Church is always reforming according to the word of God. The church has to always be coming back to the word of God to see how, how should we live as Christians, what, what is true. All right, paragraph two says, These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, Edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, 
they may have the end, eternal life. Okay. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And so here uh, we could ask the question, what do good works have to do with our salvation? Uh, and And what the confession is telling us is that good works are the result of salvation. They are the fruit of a true and living faith. They are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. So they don't cause us to be saved. They're not the reason we are saved, but they are the fruit and evidence of a saving faith. Um, now, then we might ask, okay, well, if, if works don't save us, they are fruit and evidence of true faith, then what do they do? Do they do anything at all, right? And the answer is, yes, they do some very good works, do important things. And I think this is very important for us to remember. Um, We can become so focused on the fact that works don't save us, that we can begin to think that works don't matter. Um, And in fact, works do matter. God cares very much about good works. And they are important for the Christian and they are important for the church because they do do good stuff. What what is that good stuff that good works accomplish? Uh, Well, by them, believers manifest their thankfulness. Believers, when when believers do good works, they are showing their gratitude to God. So they, so of course, as a believer, we are all thankful to God. But how do we show that we're thankful to God? How do other people see that we are thankful to God? Well, good works, this is one of the things that they do. They show our gratitude to God. They strengthen our assurance as believers. Now, we're going to get into assurance in chapter 18, okay? But as we do good works, one of the things that good works do is they strengthen our assurance. They help us to see in ourselves, the evidence of a true and saving faith. They edify the brethren. Good works build up the church. Good works strengthen and encourage and build up our brothers and our sisters in the church. Good works adorn the profession of the gospel. Of course, it is really important that Christians and that the church professes the gospel, that we tell people what the gospel is, that we confess, that we believe the gospel, that we believe what's in the word. And when we do good works, right? When, uh, to take the example that Jesus gives in the gospels, when children honor their parents, that adorns the gospel. And I think in that case, he's actually talking, he's mostly talking about grown children. When grown children honor their parents, that adorns the gospel and people begin to see that the gospel really is lovely and good and beautiful. And it's, and people see that through the way that Christians do good things. And that's just one example. We could pick many other examples when Christians tell the truth, when Christians repent of their sins, when Christians worship God, when Christians care for the poor, there are all these many different good works that God has given to us in Scripture. And when we do them, 
it makes our profession of the gospel beautiful. And so that's something for us to remember. Uh, They also stop the mouths of adversaries, right? So in other words, um, when Christians do good works, then the people who hate Christians kind of have to just shut up because how can you... And this is something that's interesting. You go back and you can read uh, early church um, writings from the early church, and there are times when Christians would say to non-Christians things like, you guys call us criminals, and yet... We're the ones who are adopting the children that you throw out on the curb. So what's going on? Uh, there are also times, there are a few places where pagans would write to each other and say like, boy, these Christians really drive me nuts. But, you know, they're so kind to each other and they're so kind to us. And they're even like taking care of people who are dying in the plague and we're not even doing that. And they're making us look really bad. So, so this, is a, this is a real thing that the good works do as well. And of, and of course, and, I, and this is most important, they glorify God. Good works bring glory to God. Whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus, thereunto. In other words, we are created in Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship for good works, right? <clears throat> um, and it, he, it makes reference to Romans 6.22 here. And uh, boy, King James English is sometimes really hard to, to, to understand even when it uses words that separately you know what they mean. Uh, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And so as we've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, we now, have, we now bear this fruit, uh, this fruit that is for us, the fruit of good works. And that the, this fruit leads to sanctification. And the, the end, the goal, the purpose of sanctification is eternal life. So, all right. Paragraph three. Paragraph three. Their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the spirit of Christ. And that they may be enabled thereunto, besides the graces they have already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do his good pleasure. Yet are they not hereupon to grow negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the Spirit, but they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. So the question here is, how can Christians do good works? And the answer is that Christians can do good works because the Holy Spirit enables us to do good works. And it's interesting that that the confession says this is in addition to the other graces that we receive. So, So we can think of the grace of faith that God, through the Holy Spirit, enables us to believe the gospel and to believe in Christ. That's a grace that we receive from the Holy Spirit. There's the grace of repentance, that we are enabled to turn away from our sin and turn to God. That's a grace. And yet, here is another grace. This is, this is a different one that, that is distinct. That in order for us to be moved to do good works, the Spirit must stir us up to do that. The Spirit must move us to do that. Um, yet... Yet, 
it goes on, Christians are, are not to be negligent about doing good works. And we are not to make excuses uh, like this very ready excuse that the Spirit has just not moved us, right? Ah, uh, well, you know, I just don't feel moved by God to honor my parents, or I just don't feel moved by God to serve the church in ways that are needed. I just don't feel moved by God to obey him in this way, and so I'm just, I'm just going to sit here and wait. I'm just going to sit here and wait until the Holy Spirit really, really stirs me up. And then once I'm really good and stirred up by the Holy Spirit, then I'll obey. Uh, this is not a very Christian way of thinking or behaving. Um, we are to stir ourselves up. We are not to be slothful. We are not to be slack. We were talking about this recently at home, that proverb, whoever has a slack hand is brother to him who destroys. Um, and so we don't want to be slothful. We need to, instead, we need to stir ourselves up. We need to stir one another up. Uh, this is something that the book of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews chapter 6. Um, it says, um, so he's just gotten done talking about how, um, you know, if a land that doesn't produce good fruit, even though it's been cultivated, if it, if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. And then he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And it's really interesting that here in the book of Hebrews, he's saying, uh, we, we don't want you to think that God overlooks and forgets about your service, that he overlooks and forgets about the good things that you've done for him and for his people. Um, boy, that's awfully discouraging, right? There, there's nothing that can, well, there are few things more discouraging than just feeling like nobody sees, nobody pays attention, nobody cares what you do, right? And so he's saying to, to these believers, he's saying, God certainly is not so unjust to overlook the things that you've done. Um, he cares and he, he recognizes it and he makes a record of it. It's also striking that he says, um, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And I think that's also really important and, in, and an encouragement to us that um, to, to hear someone say, look, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in this way to you. You know, I'm, I'm giving you this warning, but I'm not giving you this warning because I think that, you know, you're not saved. I'm giving you this warning because I, I think that you are saved. And, and I'm confident that you're going to hear what I'm saying. So let's not be uh, sluggish, but be imitators of those who believe. Um, all right. Next, we're going to look at paragraphs four and five. 
They who, in their obedience, attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life are so far from being able to supererogate and to do more than God requires as that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. And then paragraph five. We cannot, by our best works, merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty and our unprofitable servants. And because as they are good, they proceed from his spirit. And as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. So paragraph four um, both these two paragraphs are basically asking, you know, how, how far will works take us? You know, how, how, much can we, how much can we accomplish by our good works? And it uses this great word that we never use anymore, super arrogate. Uh, super arrogate basically means uh, super works, uh, do super work. And there was this idea um, in the medieval church that, okay, so... So let's say that like everybody's got their like their work meter and if you want to be saved then like your works need to be up to 100%, right? And um there are some people out there who are so good at doing good works that they can get their meter to like 125% or maybe 200%. And so all of that extra good work they called super irrigation. And sounds like a really fancy piece of farm equipment. Um, and all of and so all the all of that extra good works goes into uh, like a treasury that belongs to the church, and then the church can dole these extra good works out to people who are willing to pay for them or walk on their knees. This is where the whole idea of indulgences comes from: is that some people did extra good works. And so the church is able to take that extra and divvy it up to other people, especially if you're able to pay for it. Um, And what the confession is saying is, that's crazy. That's crazy. Like, we are so far from, like, we can't even do the stuff that we're supposed to do, much less do more than we're supposed to do, so that we, like, have more to share with other people. So we can't do that. The best... Christians, the most holy, hardworking, diligent, good-working Christians out there still fall very far short of what God expects of people. You know, if we're going to keep God's law, if we're going to do all the good works that God, God's righteous standard would hold us to, none of us come even close to doing that. And so we certainly can't, you know, the, the next paragraph, paragraph 5, is saying that we certainly can't earn forgiveness of sin. We can't earn eternal life through our good works. And it gives a couple reasons. The reason why we can't earn eternal life is because if you think of eternal life as a reward, 
and you think of our works as the thing that we try to do to earn that reward, they don't match, right? Like, if I go down to a car dealership and I want to buy a car, then they want me to pay the price of the car. And the car and the price are supposed to match. They're supposed to. And there's just no way that the good things that we do on earth in this life could ever match the glory of eternal life. There's just no way. And so, so there's no way that we could earn eternal life. And because our sin is against God, and because the distance between us and God is, as they say, infinitely great, there's no way that by our works we could earn pardon for our sin. And it goes on and it says that when we look at our works, if we see that there's something good in what we're doing, where does that come from? That comes from the Holy Spirit. And if we look at our works and we see that they're mixed, and there's also, you know, mixed motives or bad motives or selfishness or sin mixed in with the, with the good things that we do. Well, where does that come from? Well, that comes from me. You know, that comes from you. And so, basically, if our works are good, it's because God is the author of them. And if our works are mixed, it's because we did them. <laughs> so, uh, so that's, that's as far as our works will get us. All right, paragraph six says, Notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. So how is it then, like if our works are so mixed up with our own sinful motives at times and our own imperfections and our own flaws, then how is it that God calls them in scripture good works? Uh, and it's, it, is, it is not just because the Holy Spirit is the one who produces them in us, but it is also because they are accepted in Jesus Christ. We are accepted in Jesus Christ. And so because we are accepted in Jesus Christ, the things that we do are accepted. Our obedience is accepted in Jesus Christ. This is very important to remember in all of our obedience as we struggle to obey God. Um, it's also important to remember uh, I'll say this to us Reformed Presbyterians. I think this is also important to remember when it comes to worship. Uh, why is our worship and why is anyone else's worship acceptable to God? It's not because we have pure worship. It is because we worship in the name of Christ and we worship by faith in him. And so that's what makes our worship acceptable. Um, now, we can still say that pursuing purity of worship is really important. But what makes it acceptable? Because I know, 
you know, sometimes I get up, believe it or not, believe it or not, folks, sometimes I get up there and I sing a cappella psalms and I'm thinking about something else and my worship is impure. So how can it be accepted? It has to be accepted because I because I'm coming by faith in Christ. And so this is something for us, for us to remember. All right, paragraph seven. Works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them, they may be things which God commands and of good use both to themselves and others, yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a man meet to receive grace from God. And yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing unto God. Okay, so what about, what about non-Christians? What about the, the good things that they do? How does God look on their works? And the answer is that the things that non-Christians do Maybe things on a kind of superficial level that God commands. Honor your parents, don't steal, don't murder, that kind of thing. They may be of good use both to themselves and others. It's nice to live in a town where you can go to Aldi and not worry you're going to get shot when you get out of your car, right? Like that's, that's, that's good and it's useful. Um, Yet, because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner, according to the word, nor to a right end, the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God. So why is it that faith is necessary as, as kind of the, the root of good works? Why must... It, a good work come from a heart purified by faith. Paul says that anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. Uh, and that's, that's a new way to think about sin, right? It's not just, did you lie? Did you commit adultery? Did you, you know, covet? But, but what you are doing is what you are doing coming out of belief in Christ and trust in God, or or is it coming out of just I'm just relying on myself? I'm just doing this myself. Yes, and and um, and so that's why next it says, you know, are they done? You know, they, they are not done in a right manner according to the Word of God, nor to a right end, the glory of God. And so, works of unbelievers can't be pleasing to God because they don't come from faith and they don't have God's glory as the goal and they aren't according to the direction of scripture. Even if they are useful, even if they are beneficial to us in this life, we're talking about eternally. You know, what, what significance do they have eternally in the grand scheme of things in the sight of God? And not only can they not please God, and not only are they sinful, um, but it also says this, that they can't make a man meet to receive grace from God. In other words, they can't prepare a person to meet God. They can't, pre- they can't prepare a person 
to be ready for God or to be ready for salvation or to be ready for faith. And this is maybe something that you have observed that uh, there are people out there, you know, who are not Christians and yet they seem to be great neighbors. They seem to be really lovely people, you know, committed citizens and very, you know, mindful of their community and that kind of thing. And, um, and you think, boy, if only that person believed the gospel, they would be like a great addition to our church or whatever, right? Um, and then there are these other people who are like totally down and out, totally lost, wicked people who have all kinds of problems and do all kinds of crazy stuff. And they're the ones who get converted, right? And, and so whether, you know, when we're talking about someone who's not saved, when we're talking about a person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, what they do doesn't make them more or less ready for the work of salvation. Like, like if somebody's, remember, right? If somebody's dead, they're dead. And so someone could be dead for five minutes or they could be dead for a thousand years and yet they're dead, right? And so we, we, are, we are not more able to make one type of dead person alive than another type of dead person alive. But God is. God, God can do it. God can take, right, all those dry bones in the valley that are all scattered around. He can gather them together. He can assemble them in the right way. He can put flesh on them and he can breathe life into them. Yes, Carmela. Um, would you say that the, how would you explain then the difference between a downright evil, wicked person versus the man who does seem good mm-hmm. and yet he's still dead? What, what explains the difference between the two men if they're both dead, yeah. both evil in the sight of God? Is the one man who seems good and, and does all these wonderful things, mm-hmm. is that more common grace from God than the other man? Like, where does that, how, what determines, like, yeah. why they're well, yeah. better? Right. Why do some non-Christians become police officers and some become bank robbers? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, the... Yes, God works in different people the way that he wants to. And, um, and, and I think we can also, it's also important to remember that like, we aren't able to see a person the way that God sees a person. And this is a, this is a big theme in the Bible, right? Is that sometimes people seem good and they're actually really bad, right? And so Jesus says, to the Pharisees, that they are whitewashed tombs. And it's actually because they seem good that they're, they're all the worse. Jesus says you're like unmarked graves. People make themselves unclean coming into contact with you, and they don't even know it, right? So, um, so that's one thing to remember is that right, men judge by appearances, and God judges the heart. And so... so when we, so there is a sense in which we can become, we can almost feel um, like there's something unfair here. Like both the bank robber and the, you know, the upstanding 
you know, guy who runs the local nonprofit or whatever, like both of them, both of them are going to hell. And yet God, we, we have to remember like God is just, like he knows exactly who everyone is. He sees everything. He knows their heart and he's not unjust. Like he, he does repay to everyone exactly what they deserve. And um, so that's, I don't, does that answer your question? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. <clears throat> and still, their neglect of keeping the commandments of God is worse than if they, than if they do keep the commandments, right? So even, even though the Bible says that unbelieving obedience is still sin, unbelieving disobedience is still worse. Um, and, and so that's something that we need to, we need to keep in mind. <clears throat> okay, any, any more questions before we uh, dive into chapter 17? Frank. On that, on that same point, I'm not sure I I'm not sure I follow your question, but we could talk about it after. All right. <clears throat> Let's uh so chapter 17 is on the perseverance of the saints. 
So they whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by a spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. So um, we, we can ask this question, which many, which many people ask, which is, are, do Christians persevere? Do, if, a, if a person believes in the Lord Jesus... Will they keep their salvation or can they lose their salvation? And this is saying that when God has accepted someone in the beloved, that means justified them, adopted them. When he has effectually called them, he's given them a new heart. He's caused them to be born again. And when he has sanctified them by his spirit, then these people cannot totally or finally fall away, but they persevere to the end. God puts a desire in your heart when you are saved to come to church every Sunday, not because somebody forced you, because you want to be there. Why do you want to be there? Because God is here. You're going to hear God. Mm-hmm. And so your desires become more focused on God than yourself in your own selfishness of staying in bed or doing other things other than coming to church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Why do we come to church on Sunday? Why? This is Sabbath day. We're here and we're we obeying God because he said the Sabbath day. So... Perseverance of the saints. Yes, it's the perseverance of the saints. So... So there are two sides to this that, that we, we have to recognize. And one is that um, it is the saints who persevere. So that's what you're talking about, Terrell, is that it's, it is the saints who persevere. And at the same time, why do they persevere? And that's, that's the next paragraph, which says, This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. So the perseverance of the saints does not depend on the saints. It does not depend upon the Christian. It depends upon God. It depends upon the fact that God's election is unchangeable. It depends upon the fact that uh, election comes from God's love, and God's love is unchangeable. It depends upon the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins, purchased us with his blood. And continues to intercede for us. And it depends upon the fact that the Holy Spirit is given to us. And remains in us. And sustains us. And upholds us. And, uh, and finally it says that it depends upon the nature of the covenant of grace. Namely that it's a covenant that God makes. It's, it's God's commitment. And it is a gracious commitment not based on the things that we're able to pull off. And so this is really important for us to understand that 
Why is it that a Christian perseveres in the faith? Why is it that they persevere through the Christian life with all of the difficulties that arise? It is because of God. It is because Christians belong to the Lord. It is because God loves us and his love is unchanging. It's because Jesus is constantly interceding for us and we belong to him. It's because the Holy Spirit is in us and is going to stay in us. That's why Christians persevere. Now, having said that, and I I am going to kind of hasten through this chapter because we've already had one whole week's class on this topic, if you don't remember from way back in September or October. Um, Paragraph 3 says, Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. So these Christians who are going to persevere to the very end, how bad can they get? Pretty bad. Christians can get pretty bad in this life. Uh, Through the world, the flesh, and the devil, real Christians, you know, elect before the foundations of the world, Jesus died for their sins, they believe the gospel, they're going to heaven. Real Christians can fall into really terrible sin. Really terrible sin. And can continue in that sin for a time. Um, David, ring any bells? Uh, Peter, right? Um, and it can happen again. You know, like Peter had his great, you know, terrible flop, um, you know, when he first confessed Jesus as Christ. And then right after that is telling Jesus that he's not going to die on the cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And, as, and, a, and, and he didn't learn his lesson then because, right, a little bit after that, he is publicly three times over invoking oaths and curses on himself, denying that he knows who Jesus is. And then a little bit later on, he is being influenced by and kind of caving into the pressures of the Judaizers and is getting yelled at by the Apostle Paul. So real Christians can commit serious sin. And, and so we just need to know that the perseverance of the saints does not mean and, you know, and happily ever after. And he just continued on this you know, steadily upward um, just, you know, to infinity and beyond sanctification that he was just like great for the rest of his life. Um, no. And that's important for us to remember, not just kind of in theory, but like it's important for us to remember like in our families and in our churches. And um, I'm sure I've said this before. If you haven't heard me say it before, I'll say it now. Like anytime church discipline comes up, whether it's in this church or in Presbytery or in Senate, I always think to myself, that could be me one day. Like, that could be me one day, like, being investigated. That could be me one day getting rebuked by the sin. And that could be me getting suspended one day. And that's something that we all need to think about 
and, and realize. And, and, when we, and when we do this, like we, we do displease God, we do grieve the Holy Spirit, we can lose a measure of the grace and the comfort we've received from God. Uh, go read Psalm 51. Um, you know, you can see like in the letters to the churches in Revelation, um, Jesus tells some of them like, you have fallen from where you were before, you need to repent Um, Otherwise, I'm going to come to you and it's not going to be pretty. Um, The confession also um, cites to the Song of Solomon. And there's some kind of interesting passages in the Song of Solomon where the beloved, who is the beloved, um, and yet she finds herself for a time through her own negligence, kind of cast off and separated from from, from the one that she loves. And... That is very much an experience that Christians can go through. And not only that, but our hearts can be hardened. And the Gospels talk about the disciples' hearts being hardened and not being able to understand Christ because of their hardened hearts. We can scandalize others, right? Um, This is something that, again, we we need to kind of like recalibrate our expectations of what is, I'm not going to say normal, but what is certainly possible in the Christian life, that real Christians can commit sin that could scandalize a whole church, a whole church community where people are going to say, I don't even know if this person is a Christian anymore and I don't really want to be around them anymore because they have hurt me deeply. Um, that's, a, that's a real thing. Um, and this is why, you know, going back to last week, repentance unto life, it talks about like when you scandalize other people, when you scandalize the church of God, you need to... Confess your sin to those people and, and when necessary, confess your sin publicly. That's something, that's part of the perseverance, right? That's the other side of, of the scandal is real Christians will persevere through that. And, um, and we should expect to see that they will repent. Now, I don't think we can say, oh, this person sinned against me once. And they never repented to me. And then, and then they died. So they must not have been a real Christian. Like, I, I don't think we can say that. But, um, but I think it, it, it should be a normal expectation that Christians, when they realize they've done wrong and hurt people, they will, they will turn around and try to, try to make good on it. And real Christians can bring judgments on themselves, right? Um, real Christians can. Um, their marriages can fall apart through their own fault. Real Christians can end up in jail through their own fault, right? Uh, And yet they can still be real Christians. Um, So, all right. You know what? It's 7 o'clock, and we didn't get to chapter 18. I think rather than try to do chapter 18 in four minutes, we'll we'll just knock out right there.